The Litro Lab Podcast. In London in 1763, Casanova tried to commit suicide. He went to throw himself off Westminster Bridge. Happy to relate, he was dissuaded from his intent by a passing British MP, the extravagantly christened Sir Wellbore Ellis Agar, who took him for a slap-up meal in Covent Garden to cheer him up on Coxpur Street, in a tavern which sadly no longer exists, but at the time, according to Casanova's memoirs, served up roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, is one of the first known references to what's become our sole food. And strange to relate, actually it was food that first drew me to Casanova. Giacomo Casanova writes much more about food than he does about that for which he has become more famous, such that eventually when I came to write a big new biography of Giacomo Casanova, uh, I ended up coming back and back to food and eventually writing a chapter on Casanova as a food writer. Uh, I also had the great joy to discover in the Prague archive of Casanova's memoirs his recipe collection. Casanova was a highly original writer in both the historical and the literary sense. There's nothing else quite like the history of my life from his period, and in some respects it is a one-off, a work of resounding singularity by virtue of the unique experiences and unselfconscious frankness of its author. Well, one aspect that is particularly refreshing is Casanova's writing about food, an example of his inclusive approach to social history as well as of course, a simple statement of personal interest. He loved food. Late in his life, friends noted with concern his gargantuan appetite on the increasingly rare occasions when good food was available. It was one of the last sensual pleasures left to him as his health declined. But his interest in food has given Casanova a place also in the history of gastronomy. He is an invaluable source on what was eaten across Europe at a time when few were bothering to record such. If his gourmet's guide was almost always interrupted by his romantic intrigues, food was nonetheless a vivid colour in his memory. There's one sad and heartfelt note, for instance, that somehow survived in Duke's castle from late in Casanova's life with a recipe in effect for Burinese biscuits. You can still buy them in Venice. He claimed they were good for his digestion. In truth, it was soul food for an old man. Like Don Giovanni in De Ponte's libretto, Casanova barely distinguished between the love of food and the love of women. He used the language of love and sex to describe food and vice versa. The sense of smell, Casanova was fond of saying, plays no small part in the pleasures of Venus. Perhaps it was this eagerness to taste all life's pleasures and Casanova's uninhibited confidence in recalling them in prose that has made him such a first-rate food writer. At every inn, capital, ballroom, ridotto, he recalls in his memoirs what he put in his mouth, from the omelette he was greeted with when he first saw Rome, to Parisian ice creams, London's beer, oysters in Naples, imported from the Venetian Arsenale, to Corfu sweets. He never set out on the road, for instance, without thinking of his stomach. He even suggested packing a roast hare as companionable finger food. 
Well, this may bear witness to careful note-taking in the first place, a diary of consumption and of appetite that predates the history of my life and has been lost. But it may instead evidence a singularly sensory and sensual memory and the parsimony of flavours on offer to him in old age when he was writing. Casanova was reliving the tastes and the smells of his past. The history of my life, as a result, records more than 250 meals, at least 20 different wines from all over Europe, many dozens of foodstuffs and otherwise lost gastronomic arcania, such as the availability of macaroni in Louis XV's Paris, of polenta in Bohemia, of gnocchi in Venetian prisons, and the cost of a hundred oysters in Rome, or the vodka at Catherine the Great's Winter Palace. In his youth, Casanova lived through the last great age of Venetian cooking, the last fluorescence of a unique melting pot of cultural influences, the fulcrum of the original spice roots. Casanova sprinkled his pasta, for instance, probably rather like spaghetti, though he also ate macaroni, with cinnamon and sugar as would have been the case in the late Middle Ages, we know, in Venice, a style that is long forgotten even in the more remote and unspoiled islands of the lagoon and was seen at the time nowhere else in Europe. On his first visit to France, age 25, he was immediately struck with the semi-public royal residence, the Palais Royal, not yet the site of restaurants, as it would become later in the century, but by its cornucopia of choice for the discerning drinker. Ratafia, a fruit liqueur, Orgiat, the barley and almond cordial popular in Georgian London also, and Bavaroise, sweet stewed tea thickened with egg yolk, milk and kirsch. All were offered to him at the Palais Royal, as well as coffee, au lait, though it was served in the morning only, never after meals. His Parisian friend, Patu, took him to the civette tobacco shop opposite what became the Café de la Régence, and here Casanova's memoir becomes almost a modern guide to the delights of Parisian café society. He even notes the cane chairs, with the additional information that his French friend knew by name not just the cafés and their signature dishes, but the light ladies of the Palais Royal who plied their trade in rooms above. In London... Casanova was at once wildly impressed by British produce, somewhat less so by the ability of chefs here to deal with it. He reasoned that the British cooked meat simply because they had such an abundance of it, but London innkeepers concentrated, he claimed, on the meat of the matter at the expense of other courses. English meals, he wrote, were like eternity. They had no beginning and no end. Casanova employed a French chef, at his residence in Pall Mall, and ate at home a good deal. Nevertheless, he praised the simple bread and butter, tea and lemonade at Ranelagh Rotunda. He noted at the bagnos of London, the brothels of St James's that prefigured the gentlemen's clubs later in the century, that they served excellent food as part of the all-in sex deal. Inevitably, perhaps, he admired Italian food more than any other, especially Neapolitan cuisine. Everything in Naples, he wrote, is delicious. Green stuff, all the products of the dairy, red meat, veal, even the flour from Sorrento, which gives all their pastries their specific flavour. Ices flavoured with lemon and chocolate and with coffee and pot cheese is more delicious than can be imagined. Casanova linked sex, food and smell constantly in his writing. I have always found, he wrote, 
the one I was in love with, smelled good, and the more copious her sweat, the sweeter I found it, he observed. He went on in the same sentence to his opinion that cheeses only reach perfection when the little creatures which inhabit them become visible. It was a different olfactory age, richly or revoltingly more vivid than our own. The most erotic passages of the history of my life are larded with Casanova's description of food. Casanova's seduction of the nun, M.M., for instance, or hers of him, is punctuated with more detail on what they ate than their sexual acts. On one occasion, he put hair from a lover's locket into sweets that they could eat during their lovemaking, finding a Jewish confectioner who would make comfits of sugar combined with essences of ambergris, angelica, vanilla, alkerms and styrex, and ground human hair. Few lovers can have gone to quite such lengths to make a recipe for romance. Later, he poured the lot of them into his mouth, in his lover's presence, yet somehow managed to enunciate that he would die if she did not kiss him. Food was part of the mise-en-scene of any seduction, and Casanova's memory of it. On aphrodisiacs, he's surprisingly unspecific. He had the usual confidence of the age in chocolate, one of his favourite drinks, coffee and champagne. He may be the originator, indeed, of the reputation of oysters as an aphrodisiac. His most famous advice from one love affair that no sauce better suits an oyster than the saliva of one's lover was replayed in a number of his seductions and as an element of his sex education games, indeed, with younger women. The game, he explained, involved passing living oysters from mouth to mouth, then eating them off breasts and other body parts, a game not to be tried in restaurants. Could Casanova cook? Well, by the evidence of his own hand, only poorly and simply, he was more a man to direct a chef than be one. He did make an omelette for Giustiniana, but he was more likely to instruct an innkeeper or chef in what he wanted, a chevalier would not cook. He instructed one Italian on making English blank pudding, blancmange possibly, or perhaps some form of white pudding sausage, for young Betty from Hammersmith, a recipe he must have picked up in London in 1763. He believed in dressing and ordering a table before an important and planned seduction, and does this on a number of occasions, recalling the details of what was eaten as part of the foreplay in his mind's eye. However, among his papers, he left a seven-page collection of recipes, which he dissembled on his travels. In the style of the period, it mixes medical prescriptions, traveller's advice, astrology and chemistry with food. It even includes advice on how to clean paintings and a recipe for tooth whitening. This item, along with a note for a travelling stove, Italian seasoning and cooking pot, as a prerequisite for the road, gives an unexpectedly self-sufficient new man image to Casanova, the gadabout lover. His little acknowledged position as a leading gourmet and also one of the 18th century's most varied sources as a social historian of food belies other vital truths. By framing almost every erotic and romantic encounter, and many that were merely sociable, 
in the context of food. Casanova reveals himself as a dedicated sensualist with a need to reaffirm his own existence and his memory of it in the realm of tastes. His apparent sexual compulsion may be explained then less by appetite or opportunity as by a damaged and hungering psyche that found balm only in companionable sensuality. Subscribe to Literal Lab Podcast on Spotify.